We are continuing uh, to consider the doctrine of Scripture. What is Scripture and what is it like? Tonight we're talking about two uh, different things because I kind of thought that I could roll them into one, into one lesson. The clarity and necessity of Scripture. And by the way, before we get too far into this, I just want to, I want to reiterate, um, I'd like to reiterate that... Um, some of the foundation for why we're doing this. A couple of things. I, I, I print these out every week, and I intentionally leave enough margin over on the left for you to be able to three-hole punch them, if you'd like. And so, I, you know, I, I put the preparation time into this. If you would like to, you can three-hole punch these and keep them in a binder, and then at the end of it, you'd have quite a reference tool to go back to, perhaps uh, to help you prepare teaching a Sunday school class or anything else, so just to uh, uh, brush up on things if you have a question arise. So if, if anyone thinks that sounds like a good idea, but you haven't hung on to all of yours, I'll be happy to print these out for you. Uh, so um, you certainly don't have to do that, but I thought that it would be uh, maybe a, uh, be a good, good stewardship of our, of our time together. Um, so um, there's that. The other reason that we do this is because we are called to love God with our minds. And so one of the reasons, or one of the ways that we can love God with our minds is through learning, seeking to learn um, doctrine and truth. And of course, I just preached a sermon on Sunday about how we are united around the truth. That is the true source of, of unity. And so uh, I don't pretend to know every answer to every question, but God, as we're going to learn tonight, has given us a clear word. It is clear enough for us to know how to obey Him and how to live in the world that He has set up. Uh, I was talking to someone recently about the sufficiency of Scripture. It is enough for us. Um, and how, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a saying that people use, well, you know, the Bible doesn't teach me how to be a plumber. Well, I mean, yes and no. It doesn't teach you about pipe fittings and things like that. It doesn't teach you about how to plumb, but it teaches you how to plumb Christianly, right? And so the, the Scriptures are sufficient for life and godliness. The Scriptures are sufficient to tell us everything that we need to know about what it addresses. Um, and so uh, tonight we're, we're dealing with a little bit of that. If you'd like to write a little note in the margin, there's a big theological term for clarity, um, and this is, this is totally optional, but there's another word that folks use to talk about the clarity of Scripture, and it's the word perspicuity. P-E-R-S-P-E-C-U-I-T-Y. Perspicuity. And that just means clarity of Scripture. If clarity is, is easier, just don't write that down or try. You can just stick with clarity, and I wouldn't blame you uh, to, be, to be honest with you. Um, but can Scripture be understood, right? It's, 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 um, many people rightly ask the question. They, they come to a place like the United States of America, and they see all these different denominations, and everybody has a different view on, on, on things. You know, they're, they're paedo-baptists, and they're credo-baptists. You know, there are people who believe in, in baptismal regeneration, and there's people like us who say, actually, that's a misunderstanding of Scripture. Uh, there are all kinds of different variations of, of things that we believe. Thankfully, most of those differences are on second-level and third-level issues. Everyone uh, who, who is in, I believe, uh, well... 
when you, when you start changing your, your view on first level issues, issues that deal with what is the gospel, who is God, that's where if you depart from, from the truth on those first level issues, you haven't created a different denomination, you've created a different religion. Right? You've changed what you believe about the Bible and about who God is. But on these second level and third level issues, we can charitably disagree with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, our Methodist brothers and sisters. Right? We understand we don't see Scripture the same way on these issues, but we can still have fellowship and believe that we're all going to the same heaven so far as we believe everything on that first level. What is the gospel and who is God? So, but can Scripture be understood? How clear is Scripture? What should we do with the parts of the Bible that are difficult to understand? And what does this mean about how we are called to obey Scripture? Because if Scripture is not clear, then that puts us in kind of a bind about how we should obey it, right? If we're confused about what it teaches, it becomes very difficult to follow it. So here's, what, uh, here's how others have, um, have defined the clarity of, of Scripture, and here I'm, I'm, hope, I'm hoping that, that, I, that I'm demonstrating that I'm putting my money where my mouth is because I'm quoting from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which, which demonstrates that I'm willing to learn from our Presbyterian brothers and sisters on a few things. And so um, that, that's the document that at least the, the, the Presbyterians who are still believing the gospel, uh, that would be uh, the, the doctrinal statement that they, um, that they look to. The Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help, and being willing to follow it. Okay, That's how Wayne Grudem defines it. But here's the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it gets into a little bit of older language, but I think we can track with it here. It says, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. In other words, this is just probably an 1800s or, or earlier than that way of saying, not everything in Scripture is as clear as some other things in Scripture. Some things are incredibly clear, and other things are a little harder for us to get our brains around. Nor are they alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded. In other words, these things are so clearly set forth in the Bible and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, in other words, not only smart folk, but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. In other words, these things that we need to know to know God are so clearly set forth in Scripture that the smart and those who are unlearned can all see them and believe them and lay hold of them. In other words, you don't have to have a seminary degree to understand the gospel. As a matter of fact, you don't even have to have a third grade education. While the Westminster Confession of Faith here, it kind of limits its comments to the things that pertain to salvation... It's narrow. The Bible doesn't seem to make a distinction between salvation and, and just the, the other general things that it teaches outside of that. We can be confident that God hasn't been unclear about a certain set of questions while intending to be super clear on another. So we talked about this last week when we talked about the... Um, um, oh, what was the topic last week? Um, oh, not... The word is escaping me. 
Yeah, inerrancy. So I guess I'm thinking back two weeks now. But in the, in the inerrancy discussion, we talked about how um, the Scriptures are inerrant in everything that they affirm. Okay. So everything that the Bible affirms, everything that the Bible sets forth, it, it typically sets forth clearly. Okay. So, so that when we go to obey it, we can obey it because we understand it. Here's what John Frame says in the last little uh, hash mark there. Scripture is always clear enough for us to carry out our present responsibilities before God. And that's really the bottom line. The Scriptures have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Everything that we need to know to live and walk rightly before God. What about some difficulties? Because I don't know about you, but even when Scripture is clear, sometimes our understanding isn't up to pace with where the Bible is. In other words, I'm sure that the Old Testament Israelites understood Leviticus to the Word. But sometimes it's difficult for us. Sometimes it's difficult because of our own lack of understanding, right? It doesn't mean the Bible's not clear. It just means that sometimes we aren't clear, right? How I feel sometimes when I'm reading through certain portions of the Bible. But here's what Second Peter says. This is a difficulty in, in clarity, and I brought this up before, but right here it's, it's very fully in view. This is Peter speaking about what Paul wrote, okay? And count the patience of, of, of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other Scriptures. So what, what, what Peter is doing here is he's, he's doing two things at once. He's saying everything that Paul wrote that you've received, those are Scriptures too, because he refers to them as the other Scriptures. The second thing he's doing is he's kind of giving us a little point of relief if Peter himself, who knew Jesus, right, can think that there are some things that are difficult to get his head around, then it kind, of, it kind of makes me feel a little better sometimes when I stumble across things in Scripture that are a little harder for me to understand. But notice what else he says here. He says that there's a, there's a group of people that when they come to things in the Bible that are a little more difficult to understand, instead of just kind of sitting there in the mystery that God's ways are not our ways, and we just can't quite, you know, right now we see through a glass dimly. Until we're in heaven, we're not going to understand everything we want to understand. Instead of just sitting there, they take the things that, they can't, that, that are kind of unclear and they twist them, right? Let me give you a case in point. Anytime you get very far into a discussion with, with, with a member of Jehovah's Witnesses, right, or, or the Latter-day Saints, which people call Mormons, but we, we talked about how they actually don't like to be referred to as, as Mormons. It kind of became a slur, derogatory term. So I would encourage you to address them as Latter-day Saints if they, they come to your, to your home. But I just had a very honest conversation with them one time because I asked them, why do you believe what you believe about this strange doctrine that you have? And they say, oh, well, well go to this passage in the Bible. So I said, okay, I will. And I go there and I say, would you read that? And I read it. It was very unclear to me exactly what was being taught there. And I think it, 
I think it's very difficult for even Bible scholars to understand exactly what might be going on here. Different people have different opinions. And then they say, well, can't you see that's what it says right there? And they've built this big, this big, I don't know, it's almost like if you had, a, if you had an island in the middle of the ocean, and that island was, was about three feet wide by three feet long, right? It's a very small island, right? You could only stand on it. But on this very small island, they've built this big pyramid upside down, right? You can imagine the pyramid being as, as big as the, as, the, as the town of Trenton, right? And this pyramid is sitting, the, the, the point, the top of it, sitting on this little island, but then it just goes up huge into the sky. And it's this huge doctrine that they've built on this very small little island. That's kind of what I think is, is, going, is going on here. He says... There are some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable, they twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So what I would say is that scripture is always clear enough to command our obedience, but in the places where it seems a little murky, right, where it seems a little difficult to grasp, that's not the place that we build all of our most important doctrines on, right? There are folks who do that. And they do it, I think, to their own destruction. Um, I would, I'll give you another word. Typically, this is what's really interesting about the difference between Jehovah's Witnesses and Latter-day Saints. Let's say you live in a subdivision. If you live in a subdivision and... You see some folks who, you know, or let's, let's, say, let's, say, that, let's say if I, I'm a pastor and I live in a subdivision, anytime a Latter-day Saint or a Jehovah's Witnesses knock on my door, I'm always going to answer and I'm going to have as long a conversation with them as, as I can, right, while they're on the doorstep. And then six months later, you see some folks passing through the subdivision and they're nicely dressed and you can't really tell if they're Jehovah's Witnesses or Latter-day Saints, and they skip my house. If they skip my house, they're a Jehovah's Witness. If they go to your house, typically, they, they're a Latter-day Saint. And here's, here's the difference. Latter-day Saints are typically looking for people of influence. They want to go to the pastor's house. They want to go to the bank manager's house. They want to go to the doctor or the lawyer's house or the, or the mayor's house because they know if they, if, they, if they can make the investment, you know. And by the way, like optometry school is full of Latter-day Saints. Like dentistry school, full of Latter-day Saints. Very successful people. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, not so much. Not so much. It's more of a, and I know this is going to sound, I don't know how it's going to sound, but it's just a sociological fact. Jehovah's Witnesses are, are, are a little more, they're, they're looking for the quick, low-hanging fruit. Sorry to say that, but that, that's really the reality. They're looking for the person who's really disaffected with something, who needs some kind of purpose. It's just kind of how the two different groups operate. But anyway, uh, be, be, be on guard. Uh, so there's another thing, hardness of heart. Uh, let's see, difficulties and clarity. I've already spoken about hardness of heart. The disciples show that. Jesus himself teaches them. The disciples had the best pastor in the world, and they still seemed to just be so fickle and, and not understanding so many times. They had a hardness of heart. They had a veil that needed to fall. So the disciples and, uh, and us were kind of in that same boat. Spiritual blindness. Uh, everyone is spiritually b blind before Christ. 
That creates problems in understanding Scripture. Scripture seems less clear. Here's a big word in bold. Hermeneutics. It's the study of interpreting text. Um, so, before her conversion, Rosaria Butterfield, she's a lesbian activist at Syracuse University in New York State. Um, she, authored, she authored the LGBT documents on behalf of Syracuse University for them before her conversion. Uh, a Reformed Presbyterian pastor and his wife began inviting her over to their home for meals. And for weeks at a time, I mean, for, for years, she met with this pastor and pastor's wife. And just, she just wanted to talk about the Bible because she was a whole, she was a big book scholar, was what she was. So she wanted to understand the Bible. And she said what, what happened in her conversion was that the Bible got so big inside of her that she just couldn't handle it anymore. And she was moved to believe in Jesus. And now, she herself is a pastor's wife, living in Durham, North Carolina, uh, named minister to students at Duke University, uh, other places like that. Rosaria Butterfield, she was an English professor, did her dissertation on Frankenstein. She was an, an English professor, though, uh, and she, before, I, I believe, before her conversion, she would teach hermeneutics classes, but she wasn't talking about the Bible, just interpreting texts. Well, we believe in hermeneutics, and honestly, if you get on Amazon and type in the word hermeneutics, nine or eight out of the first ten books will be written about Bible interpretation, will be written by Christians, because we, we are the people who are very concerned with understanding what the, what the book originally meant, right? Uh, the reason that there's not so much of this going on in English classes anymore is because the, the, the sands of postmodernism have basically said, you just get to make up what a, what a document means. You want to read Frankenstein, you get to read yourself into it. We are actually concerned with what the book said and what the author originally meant, right? There's a difference there. Um, and so... Uh, I've just given you a couple, a couple of different uh, examples here. Their principles of Bible interpretation, principles of hermeneutics are important for understanding the historical culture and the textual context. You know, what is around this? In other words, when you're reading, let me give you an example. I've got Habakkuk 1.5. Can I borrow your Bible, Jacob? Because like a slack pastor, I left mine down in, the, down in, the, uh, um, in my office. Oh, goodness. <clears throat> Habakkuk 1.5. I want to read to you this. Habakkuk 1.5. And I'm going to read this one verse to you, and you tell me if you think I could preach a sermon, a good mission sermon off of this one. You ready? Look to the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. Sounds like a good text to do a good mission sermon on, right? Look to the nations. Be utterly astounded. I'm about to do a work that you wouldn't believe if I told you. But what comes after that? What is the context 
what's going on. Verse 6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. They all come for violence and their faces are forward. They gather captives like sand. What Habakkuk is telling them is that God is raising up, because of Israel's disobedience, God is about to raise up the Chaldeans to judge them. They're going to come, and they're going to battle, and they're going to win, and you're going to know that I'm God. That kind of changes Habakkuk 1.5, doesn't it? Look to the nations. Be amazed at what I'm about to do. I'm getting ready to do something that you wouldn't believe if I told you. Just namely, I'm getting ready to crush you with the Chaldeans. It's not look to the nations and, and, and go. Now, we can, preach a good missions, we can preach a good missions message from somewhere else, just not from Habakkuk 1.5 because we have to understand what's the context of the Bible. There's another one. So sometimes the historical things kind of get us. The eye of the needle. Have you ever heard someone talk about that? You know, the, it's, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to go to heaven and... It, Sometime or another, I know I've heard somebody say, well, in, in ancient Jerusalem, there was a gate called the, you know, the, the eye of the needle gate, and, and, the, and the camels would have to get down on their knees, and it was very difficult to get in this gate, and that's what he's talking about. Friends, that's a complete fabrication. I don't, I don't know where it came from. I have no idea, but that, that has nothing to do with it. So we have, to get the, we have to get the historical context right, and then we have to get the words right. What we read in the Bible, we have to read what comes before it and what comes after it in order to understand it. And sometimes the Bible seems less clear if we don't understand those things. So that would be not a fault in the Bible. That would just be some sharpening that needs to happen in us. Uh, I've given you another word there, although I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm tarrying here. I'm going long. Exegesis. Uh, the process of explaining a text through good hermeneutics. So hermeneutics is what I do down in my office. Exegesis is what I do, what I attempt to do up in the pulpit. Um, eisegesis is different. Eisegesis is when you present a text of the Bible as a platform for advancing your own agenda, right? In other words... You use the Bible as a little springboard to jump off of and to swim around in the waters of whatever you want to swim around in. Friends, the Bible is not a springboard. We don't need to use the Bible to do what we want to do. We simply seek to submit under the Bible. We want to understand what it says and then follow it, not to score uh, points. Um, here's what the Bible says about clarity. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7 says... Uh, I'm gonna, I want to read that, Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7. It says this, that good passage about family ministry. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, God Assume, or God spoke as if the things that he had told Israel were clear enough for them to obey. And not only to obey, but to write them on the doorposts of their, of their homes. To talk about them when they rise and when they go to sleep. God was saying, I've spoken to you a clear word. 
Clarity is not the issue sometimes. It's just our obedience. Psalm 19.7. Psalm 19, uh, seven. Says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Imagine that. The, the word of God is so powerful, it has the power to awaken our dead hearts, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. But look what it says there in verse 7, the, la- the second portion of verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Sounds a lot like the Westminster Confession of Faith, doesn't it? That the smart, that the wise and the simple can all understand what this book teaches. Hopefully, it will be easier um, if, if those who are teaching, your pastor, teachers, are doing good hermeneutics and doing good exegesis. Here's the bottom line. Scripture is more and less clear at certain points, but it's always clear enough to enable our understanding and obedience on what God requires. Any mistakes in understanding are on us, not on God. Here's the second portion, and I think you'll find this goes quicker for for those of you who are time conscious, Wayne. (laughs) Necessity. For what is Scripture necessary? What is it necessary for? Why is it needed? Are there things that are handled outside of Scripture? Well, uh, you could probably spend a couple years writing on this topic, but we're going to give it a page here. There are two kinds of revelation. God has given us two kinds of revelation. General revelation, which is the revelation that we see when we walk out our doors and we see how beautiful creation is. We see how fine-tuned the earth is. And if we were just a little closer to the sun, this earth could not support life. If we were just a little further away from the sun, this earth could not support life. It's interesting. How did all this come to be? Is this accidental? If it's accidental, that's quite the accident that we're able to even communicate with one another. We're able to even... like, Isn't this amazing that through my eye, I can see? And what I see gives me an accurate depiction of what is there. Um, it's just amazing. We can see the beauty in creation and know that there is a God. That there is a God. That's what general revelation does. Look right here in Psalm 19. The reason this will go quicker is because so much of the page is just me quoting some Bible. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Isn't that amazing? Just that magical time in the evening. You know what I love about, about this area of the world? And I don't know why this is. Maybe it's because where I lived, I lived in the foothills of North Carolina. And when the sun sets in the west, it sets very quickly, I guess, because it, there's mountains not very far away. Here, it seems like dusk just lingers. It's just a magical time. It's like the, 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 the sky is, doesn't just go from light to black. It has this navy blue for a long time here. It's beautiful. I, I never really noticed that until lately. But night to night reveals 
knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the, to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." It's just Psalm 19 reflecting on the beauty of creation and how it points us to the fact that there is a God. And then Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. Um, well, goodness, I may need to start a little before where I've quoted from. <clears throat> oh, that, that's a good place. Start at Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This verse, and, and what's being taught here, has, has caused some to go so far as to say there's really no such thing as an atheist. Everyone actually knows that there's a God. We just suppress that truth. We suppress it because it's uncomfortable. We suppress it in unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, you, you look out at the beauty of creation and you see this is no accident. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and in their fullest hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and the animals and creeping things. We, we all have a religious impulse. And if we don't worship the God, we will worship something else as God. That's what he's teaching here. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So, general revelation, this, this knowledge that there is a God, it's enough to make us accountable for knowing there's a God, but we cannot know who He is without special revelation. This is why the Scriptures are necessary. Listen to Romans 10. How then will they call on Him, this God that... You can imagine, when, when, when our missionaries, when our Southern Baptist missionaries go into certain Muslim countries, they have had multiple, multiple documented accounts of speaking with Muslims about Jesus. And the Muslim will say back to our IMB missionaries, that's the man in my dreams. You're telling me that's the man that I've been dreaming about. And then they share with them the gospel, and these, these men and women come to believe in Jesus. So we can't know who he is apart from hearing the gospel. So a missionary has to go, a Bible has to show up, someone has to hear. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And a verse in Romans 10, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing. We have to share the gospel, friends. And I would ask, perhaps the Lord is calling you to share the gospel in your neighborhood, or perhaps He may raise up, I pray that He may raise up those 
of our children and our youth and even those who were unborn to go to the nations to tell those who have never heard about the God who loves them, the God that they know is there. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is sometimes just called the 1689, or the Second London London Confession of Faith, it was written in 1689, or published at least that year. It says this, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners, that just means in different ways, it pleased the Lord at different times, different ways, to reveal Himself and to declare that His will uh, and to declare that His will unto His church. And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same Holy unto writing. In other words, it pleased God to put down what was known into text, the Bible, which makes the Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm sorry, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. In other words, in the former, Hebrews 1 1, in the former times, many, many times in many ways, God spoke through the apostles and prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. Now that Jesus has gone, ascended to the right hand of the Father, how are people to know? How are people to hear about the gospel? By us going. By us giving. By us praying. So that they can hear and turn and believe. Here's the bottom line. Since faith comes by hearing, and it is clear that we need Scripture to know God in a saving way, but He has provided a sufficient word for us, it will always accomplish its work. Isaiah 55, 11. God's word will not return to him void. Friends, this is why I don't attempt to be a salesman. I did sales for a while, and I was okay at it, right? It's like that salesman on the Andy Griffith show that just didn't really want to try to talk somebody into something that they didn't want. You know, I'm not attempting to be a salesman. I'm just simply attempting to put the Word of God forth because it's the Word of God that causes belief in human hearts. It's God's Word that will not return void. And so set the Word loose and let it do its work. Isaiah 55:11. the Word of God will not return void. It will always accomplish that purpose for which it was sent. Since our hearts are turned away from God, we need more than just the sense that there is a God. Further, we need more than just intellectual convincing. We don't need somebody to twist our arm. We need a word that comes with power to take our hearts of stone and to give us hearts of flesh. Ezekiel 36. The message of the cross is foolishness. It will be derided. It will be ridiculed. It is foolishness. But by it, God demonstrates His power by saving through means that the world calls foolish. That's just a summary of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which I will now read in order to show you my math. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly. Perhaps your Bible says foolishness. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is 
the power of God. Friends, I think that's enough for us to praise God for tonight. Let's thank him for his clear word. Let's thank him that he's given us a word that is necessary. When we had no hope of knowing him, he would have been totally justified in leaving us to continue our long march toward eternity in hell, separated from him. He instead sent his word, and he made sure that his word would go out with power for all who will believe. I feel compelled to pray right now, but why don't, before I do that, I'll entertain any questions since this has been kind of a teaching time. If anybody has any questions rolling around, yes, sir, go right ahead. Sometimes it seems dry. Sometimes it, it seems it comes in power. Right. The Spirit is a wind and He blows wherever He wills. And sometimes it, it, the same passage that seemed dry last month seems like it comes in power this month. And we know the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Other questions, comments? Mm. Mm, that's a good word. Right. Good advice. Good advice. Good advice. Anything else? Okay, why don't I pray? And friends, we will be dismissed. God, thank you that even though the message we believe seems foolish to those uh, who, who have not come to see you as beautiful, Lord, you have caused us to see you as beautiful. And Lord, your gospel it makes sense to us, and it's not because we're, we're good. It's, it's because your word has gone out in power. I thank you, Lord, that this word, we can have confidence that when we share it, there will be those who will believe. And Lord, we can know that for all who call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Lord, we ask you to do a work among us. We pray that as we minister the word here at Trenton Baptist Church, that there would be those who would see it as sweet, and who would turn and embrace it and run to it. God would run indeed to Jesus. Lord, I pray that our time tonight would, would have been edifying and that we would go out comforted by the knowledge that you are a good God who cares for us and has given us a clear and necessary word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Have a great night.